0: You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. And today, Neil, uh, you're going to introduce us to sort of the, the the groups within machine learning. And and there are two sort of big ones that I often hear people talk about, frequentists and Bayesians. Um, tell What's the difference?
1: Yeah, so this is the Jets versus the Sharks. Oh,
0: no. <laughs> the Montagues
1: versus the Capulets.
0: Someone needs to write that musical. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think a lot of this is overblown. Uh, Bayesians versus frequentists. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this um, dangerous territory, but I was—I want to talk about sort of where this comes from, how it's misunderstood in machine learning, and why it's not such a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I think it was last episode where we were talking a little bit about data science and classical statistics versus machine learning. And these terms come out of or the the, the tribalism, I I think, comes out of uh, uh, classical statistics. Mm. Um, And the way in which early statisticians were keen to remove um, uh, subjectivity from analysis. And I I think most Bayesians, I think it's not universally accepted. Nothing's ever universally accepted, it seems. Um, That Bayesian analysis is a more subjective form of analysis. And... um, So, my understanding of the story is Fisher, leading statistician, actually coined the term Bayesian to describe an approach that was known as inverse probability. Um, And what he was referring to, so there's a common confusion, which really is a bugbear of mine, that people think if you use Bayes' rule, you're a Bayesian. And that's just utterly untrue. If you use Bayes' rule, you're using maths. (laughs) And... (laughs) And Bayesian is a sort of term that is designed to make something sound like a religion. So it's actually, <laughs> and it is, it, that's what f- so Fisher was trying to do, was he was referring to, Thomas Bayes wrote this paper in, I think, 1776, published posthumously and edited by a guy called Richard Price, who actually did a lot more, to the, his his intro to the paper is much more coherent huh. than the paper itself. In, well, to a lay reader, yeah. But Bayes, when he does, he in the paper, he introduces the binomial distribution, which is like coin tossing probability of heads versus tails. And I think it was, I think it's uh, Bernoulli who had introduced this before Bayes and probably independently of Bayes because communication, they didn't have the internet then. Um, they didn't even have canals or trains or anything. They just had horses and satchels. Um, so there was less, you know, there was more sort of information isolation. And Bayes talked about the binomial distribution. And when he describes it, he describes um, that there's you have a sort of like, I think he describes a billiard table. And he says you, you throw one ball and it goes randomly between the two sides of the billiard table. Mm. And it ends up uniformly distributed between the two sides. Mm. And then he says... Now you do the same with another ball and it ends up either to the left or the right of the first ball. And he says that's the distributional setup. So this is like his what we would call a probabilistic program. Mm-hmm. It's his generative mm-hmm. model for what's going on. So he's he sampled a parameter from the same distribution that then he samples, then he says, Oh, is greater than. So if it's on the left, that's like heads, if mm. it's on the tails, on the right, that's like tails. Gotcha. Um Whereas um, Bernoulli, I think, described the same setup as picking a ball out of a bag of red and black balls. Hmm. So Bernoulli said there's red and black balls, and I pick one out, and it's either red or black, and it's proportional to the probability, the number of red and black balls in there. So this is a bag of well-mixed balls. you know. So neither of these things really work. Bec- I mean, everyone's interested in balls, though. <laughs> Interesting. So uh, I think they did a lot of games, right? They must have just thought about this around games. What if I put all those balls in a bag and pick one out or something?
0: Right. Um, It's 1776. There's not a lot going on.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you know, it got dark early. You went inside. I don't know what you did, but, you know. Either um, you have to
0: find another country and start a revolution or you have to, like play billiards a lot yeah good heavens
1: there was a revolution somewhere I can't minor yeah, revolution you know, Yeah, somewhere. anyway i don't even so now i'm saying 1776 i'm probably confusing it's 1770s or something 1762 maybe oh who cares um <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a yeah dates were never my strong point it was 1992 must have been 1792 <laughs> Um,
0: 1792. All the good papers come in and come In 1792.
1: must have been, yeah, it's... yeah, in 1792. Um, anyway, um, the, the key point Fisher then didn't like about Bayes, he, he didn't disagree with most of the paper. He didn't like this setup for where the parameter of the distribution came because the parameter of the distribution was sampled from a probability distribution, mm-hmm. not a fixed thing. So the frequentist idea is you know the frequency of black and red balls in the bag. Yeah. Um, and that's a fixed number, it's a real number, whereas in Bayes, what you've got is a sort of a random distribution sampling. Now, Fisher wouldn't have any problem with that Bayes setup, that's actually what went on, but what he objected to was treating um, the parameters of a distribution, like a Gaussian, themselves as a random variable, and that's exactly what inverse probability did. Hmm. So you start with a sort of, You want to know the mean of a distribution. And then in Bayesian inference, you start with a prior, which is your belief before you've seen data. Mm -hmm. And then you have a likelihood. And then you combine the prior and the likelihood um, using something called multiplication. Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) And then... (laughs) And then there's a renormalization step to make it a probability distribution again. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's simply, it's just the product rule of probability. It's, it's called Bayes' rule, but it's just the product rule of probability. it's, it's, it's nothing fancy at all. Hmm. Um, and then you get the so-called posterior distribution, which is the probability of the mean distribution given the data you've seen. And that's what Bayesians often look at. Now, what Fisher said is like, well, if you're trying to estimate someone's height and you make an individual's height, mm-hmm. then and you make an... A number of measurements of it then there's only seeing one single value it's not a stochastic variable and you shouldn't treat it as such um and that's the sort of core of the controversy so it's not the use of Bayes' rule he objected ah. to um because that would just be objecting to maths the right. product rule be objecting <laughs> to multiplication you know he, he was sort of very very intelligent and he would have used Bayes' rule uh, an enormous amount um he was objecting to the interpretation the philosophical interpretation of a parameter which he considered to be uh a, a sort of determined value a deterministic mm. value mm-hmm. not a stochastic so bayesianism is is in truth it's the 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 use of stochasticity to represent your uncertainty about a deterministic value got it which fisher objected to and i'm just doing it all the time you know that's that's <laughs> the kind of what i'm doing I mean, the interesting thing about that is he was really objecting to the subjectivity as well that that introduces. So where does the prior come from and all mm-hmm. this sort of thing? He was trying to do a, objective analyses like we were talking about in data science. Mm-hmm. I think today this is much less controversial. There's a lot more modeling goes on. There's a lot of subjectivity has to come in because those classical ideas that Fisher had were brilliant. They worked where they worked. And like all new ideas, you're just left with all the areas that they don't work. Mm-hmm. So you've got to wade into that long grass and, and start working something else out, you know, and, and they've done all the good stuff so you know it doesn't work anymore that's why you're in the long grass right. so you, you, statisticians and machine learners, and everyone ends up modeling again and i think that the argument's much less interesting than people make out so I, and i think in particular that the two are compatible what a frequentist will often do in statistics is they'll um look at things like worst case analysis worst case performance because they're looking to provide guarantees or they'll look at um uh, sort of uh They'll sort of say, you know, these minimax and uh, pack theorems can all be seen as uh, frequentist ideas. And often it's sort of like, well, what's the worst case thing or the properties of an estimator? That's really key is mm-hmm. like, can I show that this estimate I'm making of um, the mean of this distribution will converge, um, you know, in the limit of infinite data or what's the rate of convergence of this estimate and that's trying to be you know regardless of the model like like underlying that estimator you may have used a modeling framework a probability distribution to construct that estimator but the frequentist doesn't care about that they're looking at the sort of like give me the properties of the estimator give me some cost function that I've got to work against and I'll try and tell you you know whether how you'll perform. And that's totally not incompatible with the Bayesian approach because the Bayesian approach is much more like, well, I'm going to come up with a model of the way I think things happen, a probabilistic model. So I'm going to try and represent everything I care with as a probability distribution. And um, I'll combine them together using marginalization, Bayes' rule. I'll do maximum marginal likelihood instead of maximum likelihood. And I'll have some estimates. Now, that doesn't give me the decision that I want to make Mm. in Bayes' you're often having a probability over the circumstances. So what's the probability it's going to rain tomorrow? Well, but that doesn't tell me whether I should go outside or that doesn't tell me the thing I'm interested in. The frequentist right. would would, would want to know about, like, what's the quality of that decision that you're going to make. So that can be done afterwards. And the, what a Bayesian does, and this is very, very important and must not be forgotten, is they separate that process into inference and decision. So hmm. there's this... um the sort of doctrine of Bayesians is that if the probabilistic model they create is correct, is accurate, contains the true generating distribution within it, then you can do your modeling separate of your process of decision. Um, And the reason that's interesting is because decision is much harder to sort of talk about than in some sense than the modeling. See, you sort of, when you're being Bayesian, you you believe that that's what you're doing and you say, I can punt on the decision till later. But actually when you do introduce what your decision-theoretic measure is, then a frequentist can analyze how well you're doing. Very mm. often they can't analyze what you're doing because you've made it so complex that their analyses <laughs> fall apart. But um, it, it's sort of philosophically a different thing and the, the things are compatible, um, but then there's a lot of confusion. I mean, some of the confusions occur because the maths that a frequentist will use often looks very similar uh, to the maths that a Bayesian will use. Mm. and that's because there's only a limited amount of math that works. So in terms of all the math you can do, there's only certain things you can do tractably, like quadratic forms, linear algebra, so this is a really confusing, took me ages to sort of realize this, that you can look at the mass that Frequentist is doing as a Bayesian and then they'll give you their motivation and you think you're totally wrong about what you're doing because look, your mass looks the same as mine and but all the decisions you're making about which mass to do next are wrong.
2: Mm.
1: But that's because their motivation at the beginning was different. Mm-hmm. They weren't doing the same thing as you, you just have, you're all traveling down the same road because either side of the road is wilderness and you know the road even if it's not going in quite the right day you end up on it right um even if your end objective is different um like with kernel methods that's very true so kernel methods these support vector machines lots of overlapping mass with gaussian process but very often the philosophy of what they're doing um they're often doing worst case analysis and so i I always find it easy to describe a worst case analysis it's like if i have an and this, this happens to us all. Like if you have an instinct about a decision uh-huh. and then you ask, you know, you sort of represent it to your, your partner, you sort of say, um, I think it would be a good idea to do X. Mm-hmm. And then your partner will say, are you sure? Um, that automatically switches you from an average case analysis to a worst case analysis. Right. Because as soon as they go, are you sure? Of course you're not sure. You just thought that. And you start thinking of all the things that could go wrong and think, well, now this feels like a really bad idea. (laughs) But probably your initial instincts, you were just assimilating everything and thinking that might be fun. You know, should we invite John and Bill over? No, you know, are you sure they won't argue? Well, now you've said it. I can't be sure they won't argue. The worst case is they'll argue. We'll have a horrible time. Um, but on average, I thought it might be a nice idea so <laughs> that 's the sort of worst case versus and and very often because Bayesian uh, inference and averaging are going quite closely together, very often the sort of results you get from Bayes are sort of average case things if if the model is correct, and of course the model's never correct so these two things can happily coexist mm. um And really, I've been really talking about things from a statistical perspective, because it strongly affected the way that uh, machine learning people look at these things, even though a lot of this baggage is historic, not really relevant for us. Mm. Because uh, for us, we're very often um, just concerned with predictive outcome. And these are different just approaches to get predictive outcome, which you test empirically. Um, But there are things that slightly annoy me that, um, uh, so um, people will say, oh, the reason I'm not Bayesian is because then I'd have to choose a prior. But that's kind of a nonsensical thing to say, because in, in, in Bayesian use a likelihood and a prior together, and the frequentist is sort of saying, well, I've got my likelihood, and now I'd have to choose a prior in addition. But the truth is that when you're modeling, the likelihood and the prior is just one choice together. Mm. You know, the, the frequentist has to make a choice of likelihood. That's still subjectively adding things. The Point is that afterwards, their analysis will try and deal with that subjectivity and and give them an objective analysis, whatever they can say about what they've done despite their subjectivity, and that's an important philosophical difference. It's not about whether you need a prior or not. I mean, this is my opinion. Probably people would disagree, but but I think it just gets in the way for people to say that, and it gets in the way of harmony because, oh, there's this difference. You need a prior. I didn't. No, if I view the whole thing as a subjective Model, mm-hmm. I can, and then I say what my decision is going to be. I can still get frequentists to help me out and say, "Well, what's the quality of that analysis?" Um, it, it, it requires hard math, and often it's not done because of that. But but f- I don't I don't really find once you've accepted that someone's going to be subjective, I, I don't really have a um, problem with that. Now, I think what we should do next time is perhaps go in and, and how that feeds into machine learning, because really that's talking yeah. about statistics. Um, and there's a lot of interplay between statistics and machine learning. But I think that the way this pans out in um, uh, machine learning is different. Mm. Um, and I've already gone on far too long about, you know, the difference between these two things. I mean, my, me- my message is, you know, we can, you know, we can live together in perfect harmony. Um, <laughs> There's no, there's no sort of, you know, um, there's clashes, there's difference in terminology, um, but the philosophy is slightly different, and both things are valid. And I'll try and give an example next time about sort of what I, what I mean about where things, the two different things can fail. Um, but I think I've probably already talked about that i mean actually you could write books about it people do and maybe they shouldn't maybe we should just say all the you know this is just different approaches and they're youthful in different places and actually at the moment the people who are winning um are just the people that get enormous amounts of data very complex right. models and just throw them at them so you know maybe maybe we should just
0: uh,
1: <laughs> um <laughs> we should just not worry too much about these things uh, i mean we have to at some point but yeah
0: but not too much not too much not too much For more on Bayesians and frequentists, visit our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question on talking machines comes from Scott. I'm fairly new to machine learning, but from my experience, it seems that the majority of techniques are aimed at working with cross-sectional data, while there are relatively few for panel data. What I often encounter is that time-dependent data are transformed into features that allow one to maintain the cross-sectional nature of that dataset. Are there other models and or research that you can point me to for handling panel data, in particular, binary classification? In the field of econometrics, this sort of problem would be likely addressed with a random or fixed effects model. Certainly there must be some useful tools for this class of problem from the machine learning community. Thanks so much. So Neil, do we have any advice?
1: So That's interesting because we've got a question which is coming very much from econometrics terminology. I'm not an expert in econometrics, but let me try and Mm. decode what I understand by some of those terms. Um, So a cross-sectional data would be, as I think Scott suggested, the sort of thing we're often looking at in machine learning where you perhaps have many uh, features about, Either a subject or multiple subjects. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, well, now let's let's assume it's one subject, and you've got many characteristics about them. And then, I think Scott mentioned binary classification, and you build a binary classifier. So, uh, right. in an image, those features are the pixels in the image of that particular subject's face. But I guess in econometrics, one might be more interested in, um, uh, I don't know, predictive variables of some economic outcome. Um, which uh, all escape me, what they might be at the moment. (laughs) I know, (laughs) rates of inflation or something. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, uh, econometrics is actually also very concerned about causality. So I think that they have endogenous variables and exogenous variables, and they're very often interested Mm -hmm. in um, which variables, and then uh, do they call it the response variable, which is the output, which variables are things that they can control to change things? Because econometrics, you're sort of looking to... And you're also looking at a large scale. The models I think are often explanatory. Now the mm. panel data description I think we would call multivariate time series. So that would be mm. a multivariate input. Now multivariate time series. Now, ooh, um, so that might be like a video would be an example ah. of something that you I think you have a bunch could of variables of.
0: changing across time.
1: You have a bunch of variables changing across time. So I think. Um, you have got cross-sectional data. A longitudinal study would be, I think, a single variable changing across time. And panel data, I mm-hmm. think, is a bunch mm-hmm. of variables. Mm-hmm. So there the are techniques for that sort of data, but it's it, it a lot of it depends on what sort of question Scott has in mind. So certainly people have techniques for trying to predict that type of data. So you you know uh, you a GAN would be a way of generating. Um, uh, Or, you know, things I've worked on, latent variable models would be a way of trying to generate a multivariate data point. So if it was um, a cross-sectional data, you could do that independently. And then what people do, um, both with latent variable models, or um, you can imagine doing, I'm guessing people have done this with GANs, you can put in time dependence. So um, the you can have the setup where the GAN at the next time point takes inputs from the GAN at the previous time point. Um, Mm. And if you do that in the hidden layer, that's like a recurrent neural network type structure. So in recurrent neural networks, they connect hidden layers together um, over time. And in latent variable models, we do the same thing. We have sort of probability distributions Um, And of course, these will be used in econometrics. So things like principal component analysis, I'm sure, are used in econometrics. Um, But you can do things like you can have versions of principal component analysis where the principal components evolve over time. And the really interesting thing about the way things have gone with that is there's two ways you could compose those models. So you can think of this as model composition. One Mm -hmm. is just by sticking such models together and then um, deterministic models together. Um, And so that would be the uh, sort of um, uh, non-stochastic approach. Um, And then using connections uh, between them, differentiating through them, using the chain rule, or using automatic differentiation. So that's the sort of thing you're doing in a recurrent neural network. In a um, uh, state-space model, you're typically doing the same thing, but you're having a conditional probability distribution that allows you to evolve from one time point to another. And then you use Bayes' rule, as we were Mm. just talking about. You don't have to be Bayesian to do it. You can do it without (laughs) being Bayesian. Uh, It's totally valid. Um, In fact, being Bayesian in that case would be putting uh, additional prior distributions over the, say, the principal components that revolving, not just the latent variables. Um, Now, where were we? He said, say, binary classification. So that Mm -hmm. you you can now start making models up. You can make up a recurrent neural network. I mean, a recurrent neural network can take as inputs and and, uh, uh, sort of high dimensional inputs, and it can have an evolution uh, over time um, to create the output. So an LSTM, or there's various different varieties, um, can be used for that. A state space model, um, you can do the same thing. You could have variants of common filters where you have an output that is a, a, a binary output, um, and that will work as well. I think the key difference is that in econometrics, then they would be looking to, for these models to be explanatory. Mm. So at the end of it, you would want to, you know, you can't go into the minister and say, "Look at my recurrent neural network," you know. Uh, right. and they say okay what should i do with the economy uh well i don't know um <laughs> you know you have to go into the you, know, you go into the minister and you sort of say well these uh i don't know what ministers uh what do you what's the american equivalent of secretary of something uh, secretary, yeah, a
0: secretary yeah secretary of yeah. whatever
1: yeah 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 secretary director of
0: something or other director
1: or or whoever you're working with and say hey we should do this we should um we should increase inflation no not increase inflation increase uh, interest rates <laughs> We should uh, decrease interest rates because we've shown in our models that this this effect will happen. Um, mm-hmm. So they're trying to be explanatory and causal, and causal inference is a difficult thing. Right. Lots of interesting people look at it, and you can only do it in certain circumstances. And it's harder to do with these more complex state-space models. Um, linear ones may be okay. So maybe that binarized Kalman filter type model or routstrung will smoother or switching state space models. Maybe there's something there, but really? as you make it a recurrent neural network, you're more focusing on the prediction, less about the explanation. And I think that that's where right. you would you would trip up. But yeah, yeah, there's a lot of techniques. I think one thing that happens now is the, the successful techniques so dominate texts that people don't even right. look at the other stuff people have done. I mean, almost everything people, you could think of doing, people have probably looked at at one point. That's reasonably likely to be true. And maybe even as far back as like the 1960s or whatever. Um, it doesn't mean it's not worth trying and it doesn't mean you have to read everything before giving it a go, um, you know, just go ahead and try it. And, you know, um, because the reason it didn't work in the past m- is probably very different from why it might or right. might not work today. Um,
0: so there might not there might not be a lot of being talked about this in, in current literature, but if you do some hunting around Lots of people have asked lots of questions in some form or another.
1: But it might be hard to find. So, again, uh, Mm -hmm. speaking to someone um, about it can help. But also just diving in and giving it a go. I'm a great believer in that. Different people think in different ways. Some people, like with PhD students I've had, I've had ones that want to understand everything about a field before they start going forward. And, you know, they end up being slower starters, but when they get going, they're amazing. They just start churning stuff out. I was much more of the type that, to understand something, you have to dive in and try it. Um, hmm. and, and then you can make naive errors, and, and you mustn't get too discouraged if people knock you back. Um, just try and learn from it. Pick yourself up and uh, on you go again. Um, but And also, you know, don't, you know, um, certainly always be prepared to find out. I mean, the classic mm-hmm. one is uh, these David Mackay, Radford Neal, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Intellectually, probably the two most outstanding giants of my time in the field. Um, they invented this sort of codes, these uh, low-density parity-check codes. Um, extraordinary, near-channel-limit codes. Extraordinary things. Developed a decoder. Um, did some background work and found out. Uh, um, a coding theory guy called Gallagher, who's uh, quite famous, uh, had had already invented them, but never, I think, hadn't necessarily implemented the coder you know, a number of years before. And it happens to the very best of us. It, you know, mm. it, it, it doesn't matter because the, you know it was super important. They did the work then because you know the codes. I think they're widely used now. Um, super important codes. Um, uh, you know, it was important that the work they did was done, but right. someone else had happened to have defined these codes before.
0: Um, and sometimes, when you rediscover something that's already been worked on previously, it gives it a, a new a new light. It it, it opens uh, it up further.
1: Yeah, and I, I think there there is a bit of a game in the field of running around and finding the first time that someone said something. Um,
0: Everybody wants to be the first person on the moon, but oh, well, they want be.
1: There's this like retro historian effect, you know, where people want to rewrite history according to some single point of origin, the origin myth like i don't know mm-hmm. like romulus and remus finding rome i right. don't think they did right. you know they just wrote a paper <laughs> about it it wasn't implementable at the time uh, but then later when someone actually built the city you said oh look there's this is citation back uh 500 years before Romulus." Uh, we really
0: romulus think that rome will exist at at in the future <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. yes right, it's it's right. hypothesized
1: that rome might be possible at one point and it would rule the mediterranean
0: <laughs> damn it no
1: <laughs> You know, and actually, the things that were like the ideas are of their time as well. You know, the success of an idea. Look at neural nets. It's, you know, there's a load of new stuff now, but the initial successful stuff was old. It was just re implementation, beautifully done, cleverly done, hard work. Don't take ever the credit away. But um, you know, fundamentally, well, who first set one might be able to do that? Well, Newton invented the chain rule, so or maybe it was Leibniz. You know, there's another priority yeah, argument. Right.
0: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> we won't go there. Well, if you've got a question for talking machines about something that exists or you think might already exist, email us at the talking machines at gmail.com or tweet us at T L K N G M C H N S. Our guest on this episode of Talking Machines is Catherine Heller. She's an assistant professor at Duke University in the Department of Statistical Science and at the Center for Cognitive Neuroscience. And when we sat down with her, we asked her the first question we ask all of our guests. How did you get where you are? I was interested in in computing and data analysis
2: from very early on. I can actually date it back to some time when I was in high school. Um, I took some early programming classes and I think I became interested, honestly, because Computers were something adults didn't really know about. Mm, secret world. <laughs> so yeah, that's right. It's something I could have my little sort of teenage teenager control over and not be bothered by older people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> nice.
2: So um, where did you do where did you do your PhD work? My PhD was at the Gatsby Compu- Computational Neuroscience Unit. Um, it's affiliated with University College London. Mm-hmm. And did you do a postdoc, or did you go into industry at all? I actually did two postdocs. The first postdoc was funded by the EPSRC in the UK. It was officially at the University of Cambridge. Um, And my second postdoc was funded by the NSF. It was an NSF postdoc fellowship, and it was at MIT. Nice.
0: And now you're you're at Duke and running a little lab and all that good stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of fun. So tell me about the questions that you're asking there. What are you really excited about these days? Um, so we do Bayesian
2: statistical machine learning, uh, n- machine learning, and we apply it to a couple of different application areas. The f- one that I'm primarily working on right now is medicine. Mm-hmm. So um, we've applied um, longitudinal modeling. We've done joint longitudinal and point process modeling for chronic kidney disease, um, mm-hmm. predicting the progression for. Patients um, using electronic medical records across the university once they hit um, a certain level of something called EGFR. So it's like an estimated measurement of how well their kidneys are functioning, Mm -hmm. like what the rest of their disease course is gonna look like and whether we think that they're gonna need to go on dialysis in the long run. And we've tried to do joint prediction of that and uh, whether there are other events that we're gonna need to look out for, like are they gonna be readmitted to the hospital, um, are they going to potentially su- suffer from cardiac events, that kind of thing. We've also looked at predicting surgical complications. Hmm. So uh, so we've done str- some straight up modeling and we're working on um, some more complicated transfer learning methods, um, like Bayesian factor analysis methods, Um, for trying to uh, predict whether somebody going into surgery is likely to have a complication, like a bleeding complication or urinary tract infection coming out of surgery. Um, We're also looking at using mobile technology for um, getting more data so we can do better prediction for some chronic diseases. Uh, For example, the one that I'm mainly focusing on is multiple sclerosis with the neurology department, so we're reaching the end of developing uh, an iPhone app to record different kinds of data, so for example, um, surveys that people fill out every once in a while, data that's collected via a fitness tracker, um, and data that's collected via like little tasks that you do on your iPhone, Mm. Um, and we're trying to use those in combination and potentially in combination with other things that are collected in clinic, like MRI uh, scans, in order to do prediction about what somebody's multiple sclerosis disease course is likely to be like, what the population or the subpopulations of multiple sclerosis are like. So, for example, for a particular symptom like fatigue, there might be a lot of reasons why you feel fatigued, Um, it could be that it's your MS. It could be that it's a drug that you're taking. Mm -hmm. It could be that you're just not getting enough sleep at night. Right. And so we hope to be able to pull apart those different things to be able to decide on what treatment is going to be most effective for that particular patient. Those are the main projects I'm working on in healthcare right now. I'll stop there.
0: No, no, that's amazing. (laughs) They, they sound, um, they, I mean, they sound Absolutely revolutionary, especially for, like, direct patient um, quality of life applications.
2: I think it's really important. I think you're going to see more and more of this going forward. It's it's almost sad, I think, how far the medical community lags behind other communities Mm -hmm. like sports, which I think is... Not very meaningful, not to downplay sports, but like not very meaningful in comparison with medicine, is just so much farther ahead in terms of the amount of data analysis that they do and in terms of their use of various kinds of statistical and machine learning methods in order to do prediction. Um, and I'm really, really excited about trying to get medicine to be a bit more advanced and to be able to leverage um, large data sets in order to make better inferences about the kinds of
0: things that are
2: going to affect people and the best decisions for them medically.
0: Why do you think that is? I mean, um, I would have thought that the uh, medical profession, I mean, they produce so much quantities of data on like a daily basis that they would be running towards any form of analysis and any form of analysis that is easier on humans to to perform.
2: Yeah, that's right, they do. there's a ton of data in terms of uh, electronic medical records. There's a ton of data that can potentially get collected through all kinds of mobile devices and sensors. I, I, I think that um, in part it's been a cultural issue, right? Mm. Um, I think that physicians and clinicians they have another job to do, right, that's mm-hmm. not thinking about data. And so I think, unfortunately, it's maybe taken the community a while to sort of warm up to the idea that this is something that can be done and it's something that they can incorporate
0: into their day-to-day routine. So so looking at the types of data that you're looking at, kidney failure, MS, um, these are very different types of, of diseases in terms of symptomatic expression and so on. What are the commonalities in medical data that you see?
2: Um, there's a lot of l- longitudinal modeling. There's a lot of modeling uh, the progression of things over time, right? So you can have a particular disease. The disease tend to ha- ten- tends to have a particular disease course or it might have a bunch of subtypes of people with particular disease courses. Um, and that's something that we are are looking to model and we should be able to model for all kinds of subtypes of the disease. Um, and then I think probably the most important thing is then looking for each of these subtypes given their disease course and trying to say, okay, what can we actually do about this, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What kind of interventions can we make that are effective for people in different situations? and um, we're at the point right now with a lot of these studies where we're really starting to pilot them and to check out. The prediction works works pretty well, right? Where we can say, here, look, we can predict for a particular patient, this is what they're likely to experience. But what you know, what we're starting to pilot is. Looking at different kinds of interventions that are made by physicians, right? Like this is only like a guidance for the physician that are made by physicians. Um, looking at the different interventions and seeing what's effective one, and hopefully from that we can learn how to treat people better for the particular disease that they have.
0: So being able to make recommendations to the physicians about possible interventions that might be particularly effective at this right. moment that they might not right. see themselves. Right. That's incredible. I, how, I mean this sounds like it could could revolutionize the way that people practice medicine. We're hoping, we're hoping that's true. So where else are you looking are you interested in applying this um uh other other chronic diseases or or is there a um a possible application do you think for acute issues? Um so in
2: terms of in terms of medical issues there there are obviously tons tons of places to to apply this kind of work, um, and I think there are a lot of people who are interested in getting into this, getting into this field. And there's just more. I mean, even when I look at Duke Hospital, there are more people who are interested in collaborating with me than I could possibly collaborate with. I mean, the projects <laughs> I didn't mention, right? Uh, uh, congestive heart failure, sepsis prediction, I could go on and on and on, mm-hmm, right? And mm-hmm. some of them are financially more lucrative for the hospital as a business, mm-hmm. and some of them are just important for people in terms of like improving their day-to-day quality of life, but they're, they're all important. And it's much more than I myself can do, and so I'm really hoping that more people get into this area and that we see more research going on because it is such an important area and because I think we can make such a large impact on how people help people's medical lives, how mm-hmm. um, people's medical lives are.
0: So you've got more more collaboration requests than you could possibly handle. Yeah, yeah. Do you think, and I think there's a been a huge uptick in the last couple of years um, in interest about biological data sets. Do you think we'll see more people from ML move into working on medical questions or more people from the medical field interested in learning some ML skill set?
2: I mean, hopefully both. I think it's, I I don't want to sound in any way arrogant about my background, but I think that it takes a really long time to accumulate the mathematical background and statistical tool set that Mm -hmm. you need in order to really do a great job of looking at a particular problem and saying, okay, this is what I think needs to be applied here. And people who, the nice thing about people who do sophisticated methodology is that they know when to do simpler methodology if that's actually needed to make progress mm-hmm. about uh, like on a particular on a particular application data set i think you know hopefully i I'm, i've become a r- really big supporter of the idea that the amount of statistical education In medicine needs to improve and I Mm. think it's important not because I expect clinicians ever to do like data analysis themselves but clinicians are uniformly going to have to understand what's going on when they see the output of the prediction and they're going to have to and they're going to be able to make better judgments if they know how how Basically, what they're seeing is working, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And so, like on a case-by-case basis, they might be able to say, "Okay, you know, I know that I'm seeing this prediction for this particular patient, but I don't think that this patient really falls within the regime of what this algorithm was really, really created to do." And they're only going to be able to say that if they get the education to have a basic understanding of
0: of um, the the kinds of things that we do. Mm-hmm. So in order to able the, to make those sort of co-decision areas not just be informed by what the algorithm is telling them, but actually push back on it or provide more context, they need some basic understanding of what's happening. Yeah, what's both.
2: both They need it to like understand like what's being presented to them, but then also to think critically about it and to understand like why it may or may not apply to a particular patient. Um, so I'd really like to see more um, more basic statistics, more computing integrated into a medical school kind of curriculum. Mm-hmm.
0: So tell me more about the mobile data collection idea. I think that's really amazing. Where did that come from? Where are you hoping to go with it? You're just starting the study on ms with it with the app yes
2: yeah, that's right. Um, so we're just reaching the reaching the stage where we're completing um, completing uh, the development of this of this iPhone app using research kit um, and if this wasn't a radio program, I would show you a demo of <laughs> we'll this the particular website. app. Yeah, um, but it's it's really I mean it's really impressive, and I think it's going to be great. And I think it's going to be great for patients with multiple sclerosis both to affect their patient care, right? Because it mm. creates reports that they can then take and show to their doctor. And hopefully, it will do a much better job of summarizing what they've been experiencing in the intermittent period between clinic visits. Mm-hmm. Um, but it will also collect data for us. which we can hopefully leverage across lots and lots of people to learn more about the disease and again what different treatments might be effective in different situations Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm super excited about that I think mobile technology and mobile sensors have great promise in terms of um, in terms of advancing medicine There are things that we'd like to do that we don't really have the sensor technology to do right now. Mm -hmm. We'd like to be able to measure, for example, somebody's body temperature who has multiple sclerosis because... um, there's something called Utahs phenomenon where if a patient with multiple sclerosis gets too hot, then they can re-experience some of the, some of the symptoms that they've had in the past. Wow. Um, and so if we see somebody's body temperature climbing, we could be like, warning, you know, you're about to hit your threshold, you know, try to cool down yeah. instead of like continuing your run or, right, right. you know, whatever. Um, and so that's the direction in which I see this going, right? You could also think about integrating it. Into, for example, like somebody's home, right? Like, okay, I'm gonna turn up your air conditioning in your house so when you get back, like, you're gonna cool down much more quickly, Mm -hmm. that kind of a thing. Um, And I think we'll be successful with that in the long run. Um, I'm collaborating with a neurologist and I'm a specialist right now at Duke, uh, at Duke University. His name is Lee Hartzell. And I, you know, basically I I think part of the initiation for this, for this idea really came from him and his drive to see mobile technology incorporated to a larger extent into his patient population.
0: Mm. So this study is going to be launched at Duke for his patient population.
2: Yeah. So we'll launch the study, um, for the population in the clinic at Duke. Um, there's also another study that goes on and, in North Carolina called the Murdoch study Um, and there's an MS cohort there and we'll also recruit people from um, the MS cohort of that, of that study, but we'll also release the app on the app store so that anybody with MS can download it. And hopefully like we'll get, I mean, that will allow us just to get like an enormous amount of data, which will be really beneficial to us.
0: That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. Do you have a, do you, on the horizon, do you have another disease Uh, that you feel like would be really uh, helped by having a mobile intervention for data collection? So we've talked a little bit to the
2: neurology department actually about doing this for all neurological disease staying in the field of neurology, right? So, So our app is called MS Mosaic. Um, And you could think about having a stroke mosaic and an Alzheimer's mosaic Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. app, right, where you're basically collecting data and symptoms, symptoms and um, activity data and task data for each of these. Um, Right now, there's um, there's an app for Parkinson's disease, Parkinson's disease um, called the Empower app app. that that looks at some of this. They look at things like voice tremors. Um, So it's, I mean, again, it's very early stages, but I think it would be beneficial for a lot of disease. And then that's not to mention like chronic diseases. I think basically any chronic disease, right, would benefit from this kind of um, mobile mobile technology and data collection mechanism. Um, But um, there's a researcher at Duke um, whose name is Nerma Shah who's in pediatrics and looking at um, Using mobile technology to um, to to monitor the pain levels of patients with sickle cell, cell anemia, wow. right? So even something like completely different. And again, like I'm really interested in the data end of this, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. once we've collected like this large amount of data from any mobile device, how do we then? um use sophisticated data analysis techniques in order to draw conclusions that can be helpful to patients.
0: Yeah. So tell me a little bit about I mean this seems a little different than the other medical data sets that I know of. You are basically able to start fresh and like ask all the questions that you want to ask as opposed to being presented with I don't know 25 years of whatever the physicians have been collecting about their patients.
2: Yeah, that's right. So that's right. So so we're we're trying to think a lot about the data um, the data that we're collecting via the mobile devices. Um, the electronic medical record is kind of what it is, right? You get the data. Um, it, people complain about it being very noisy um, and hard to clean and things like that, and that's all true. But actually, probably my biggest problem with electronic medical record data is the data that's just not there at all, mm. right? Because there's nothing you can do about that. You can't go right. back 20 years of time and collect in time and collect data right. that like nobody bothered to write down. Um, And so I think, you know, if I could take the chair of every department of every department in the medical school at Duke into a room like the you know, the thing I would really try to hammer home is that like they really need to think about the data that they're collecting and the data that they're putting into the electronic medical record, because we're never going to be able to go back in time and recollect it.
0: Yeah. How helpful it would be if they had some exposure to statistics yeah, when thinking exactly. about the information they were exactly. collecting. Exactly.
2: It's super important. It's just super, super important. Um, but right now, you know, I get I get a lot of complaints about like, oh... The electronic medical record system itself is new. We just started using a computer, right? right. Like, give us right. time to adjust to this. Right. And you know, I'm very, I'm very uh, antsy, right? So I'm like, no, no, you've got to <laughs> do it now.
0: <laughs> it's really important, really. Right. Yeah, definitely. So, do you have any particular strategies that you feel work well for working with this um, uh, medical data, which I can only assume is really high dimensional and and pretty gritty and and hard to deal with when you you get it initially. Do you have any systems that you like? Um, Do you mean, uh, so we're really
2: right now kind of doing different things. For a a lot of the longitudinal modeling, we're using Gaussian processes um, in in part in order to do the longitudinal modeling, um, various point process models um, to look at adverse events, um, we even do stuff like simple sparse logistic regression in order to do sort of like binary f- classification for, you know, do we think this person is going to have a surgical complication or not? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's like a lot of Bayesian non that we can do down the line in order to say like cluster people into different groups. Um, but it's really, um, it's really early days. We're looking at factor modeling in order to do tr- transfer learning. So... Another problem that we run into a fair amount is that uh, sometimes they're like these national databases where we have um, data that's been collected from a whole bunch of different hospitals. And then we know what our contribution at Duke is. Um, and so we'd like to be able to leverage this national data in order to make better predictions for patients at Duke. But of course, like the Duke collected data is gonna be more informative about what somebody's outcome is gonna be like at Duke than the national data data set as a whole, right? So how do you balance those two things? Mm -hmm. Like what's the trade-off like? And so we've looked at um, Bayesian statistical factor analysis kinds of methods or factor models. Um, In order to do that, that's work in progress. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of interesting modeling and modeling techniques um, that I think can be employed. I mean, it even bridges into social networks. So I I've, I've collaborated with somebody at UNC um, who's an epidemiologist. Her name is Allison Aiello. Um, and uh, basically, she worked with um, students in student dorms um, at the University of Michigan in order to, like, track the flu mm. um, over the course of, like, a flu season, right, where students were given, like, mobile apps and those mo- mobile apps, basically allowed um, for the monitoring of the students' locations, who they interacted with, that kind of thing. And then looking at everybody's symptoms and like what their interactions are like, we can predict whether you're likely to get wow. the flu or not. And so hopefully down the line, um you know so she looked specifically at um an intervention of like if we have a student then like who's starting to get sick isolated in the dorm room Mm -hmm. can we you know slow the slow slow the spread of the flu um but we just looked at the prediction aspect like can we actually do the prediction of whether or not you're likely to get sick what kinds of other covariates correspond to um, increasing your likelihood of getting sick. So we found that things like drinking more alcohol or um, getting poor sleep actually increased your chances of getting sick and lengthened your recovery
0: time. So, so being that in college cool. was a... Yeah. yeah,
2: no, I mean, yeah, that's right. Mean. <laughs> being in college, not great in terms of getting sick.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Catherine Heller, assistant professor at Duke University. I think her perspective into, into the world of biology and health is just amazing and I'm really excited to see what comes out of her work
1: yeah I think it's so um well Duke's a great place to be doing that type of work yeah. as well and, and actually Catherine's a, one of those examples that she started in machine learning she's moved into stats she's crossing over into this is the sort of people we want uh you know bringing all the different ideas together because those challenges in health and biology are so difficult
0: yeah definitely Well, that's it for us on this episode of Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman.
1: And I'm Neil Lawrence.
0: Tune in next episode.